Welcome to the Wellbeing for Real Life podcast. Have you ever wanted to live life better, but found yourself baffled, bewildered, and bored by complicated, confusing, and condescending advice? This podcast is the antidote. I'm Dr. Richard Pyle, GP, lifestyle medicine specialist, and author of Fit for Purpose. Each episode, I'm joined by leading experts as we explore different areas that affect our everyday lives. This is the Wellbeing for Real Life podcast. Hello and welcome to Wellbeing for Real Life. In this episode of the podcast, we're talking about connections. I'm Dr. Richard Pyle, GP with a special interest in cardiovascular medicine and lifestyle medicine and author of the book Fit for Purpose. My guest in the studio today, once again, is Dr. Wendy Maleffi. Hi, Richard. Thank you for having me again. It is lovely to have you back. Uh, Wendy, for those who haven't listened to this podcast before, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a GP as well. In fact, Richard and I have worked together, worked together many, many years, years ago. ago. <laughs> <laughs> and over time, I've also trained, retrained as a wellness coach, as well as a mindfulness teacher. Really disciplines that I feel kind of complement my, com- uh, my consultation style. I like to just bring in the whole picture when I consult. Thank you, Wendy. And, and the thing we're talking about today is connections. And I know that you and I both believe that that's one of the really important pillars of well-being. You know, we, we can talk about sleep and movement and nutrition, and those are quite obvious physical things. But I think connections with others is, for me, probably one of the most important pillars of well-being. And I wanted to start by asking you, particularly in the context of the pandemic, about loneliness, really. Do you ever have patients come up to you in the surgery and say, doctor, I'm lonely? <laughs> that's why I'm here. That's why I'm coming to talk to you today. I know. That's a really interesting. Not often, you know, not often. Some patients, you get a sense of it. You know, you. I guess as GPs, we're in that privileged position of really knowing our patients and we know their social circumstances. And we can tell sometimes when perhaps when they're presenting frequently or when they come and the story just doesn't quite fit. Mm. And it's really through digging and asking the right kind of intuitive questions to find out a little bit more about what is the story here that you can have a sense of there might be loneliness Hmm. here. So the answer really is that it doesn't often drop on your lap like, Doc, I'm lonely. I don't know what your experience is, Richard, Hmm. in in, in your practice. I, I agree with you. I think usually the people that admit to being lonely tend to be the ones that you've actually spent a bit of time with. So they know you and and when they're talking to you, it's an ongoing conversation. It isn't the first time they've ever met you. People don't tend to open with the problem is that I'm lonely. But those patients that we see at the surgery a lot, um, the frequent attenders, whether they come to our surgery or to the A&E department, sometimes the, the underlying reason really is that they're essentially lonely. And I think for me, loneliness, I think it's been defined as the the difference between the quality of the relationships that you have and the quality of the relationships that you'd like to have. And if you've got that mismatch, um, I think what people don't realise is that actually it can have real consequences for their physical health. Is that something that you talk to patients about? Yeah, absolutely. It's something to think about. And something that you also mentioned, um, some of the patients who come that you know very well and they might allude to the fact that they're lonely. And loneliness is not only 
when just the sense of being living alone, it you can be with people or be in a crowd and still feel quite lonely. So there's that to think about as well in terms mm. of what does loneliness mean to you? And it means different things to different people. And in itself, loneliness has, you know, mental repercussions. And that in turn will cause other kind of physical problems. Mm. So sometimes you have to find a way in if it's through some physical condition and exploring that a little bit more. But ultimately, you really do have to try and explore the whole story because if you don't address it or if you take the shortcut and just give them a painkiller or something because they complained mm. about a headache, yeah. then you're really doing them a disservice. You're not really taking a bit more time to just try and figure out what the problem is because it's it's a pandemic waiting to to happen i think the data shows it's something that we might not be aware of but loneliness has lots and lots of other manifestations it, yeah. it, it does remind me of, of a story of how not to do it uh one of the uh, senior doctors in my practice whom you and i both know but i won't name that uh, come on richard did, did comment <laughs> and this was not actually his issue but it was his trainer's issue so okay. going back a very long time when this particular friend of mine was a trainee gp he once sat in with his trainer gp and a lady came in and her her presenting complaint her, her opening gambit or whatever the term is that you use was about a headache and they spent a long time talking about her headache. And my friend, who was a junior GP, was sitting at the back of the room thinking, I don't think the headache's really the problem. And she kept doing what we call dropping cues in the consultation. And she would refer to her relationship, her marriage, the difficulties she was having with her husband. And the GP that was my friend's trainer seemed to ignore every single mention that she made of that, got the consultation over with very quickly, and the patient left the room with a prescription for painkillers for her headache. And my friend was thinking, I have got the world's worst GP as my trainer. How terrible. <laughs> this doctor then turned around to him and said, what do you think that person wanted to talk about? And my friend said, I think she wanted to talk about her marriage. To which the other doctor replied, yes, so did I, but I wasn't going to open that can of worms. <laughs> and I know that we're, we're joking about it, but it illustrates your point perfectly, that if we're not careful, what we end up with is effectively palliating yes. our patients and by that you know in in the medical world we use that term as you and i know to describe people for whom no further curative treatment is available and we're, we're trying to ease their passing we can't cure them we can't fix them no. but we're just going to make life a bit less uncomfortable for them and we're comfortable doing that with people who are dying from cancer or heart failure or dementia or just very old age but the risk if we don't pick up on those cues and, and have a way to respond to it in, in primary care in my view is that what we're effectively saying to them to a 20, 30, 40-year-old is, well, I'm sorry that your life is a bit rubbish and that you feel lonely and that your relationships aren't great. But because I'm a doctor who's been trained to look after people with diseases, all I can really offer you are, are painkillers or antidepressants and, and good luck. And I think, you know, that's a that's a real challenge to us. It is a real challenge, but I'm just thinking, sitting here thinking, how can we change it then as a, mm. as a profession, I guess? How can we start up? approaching loneliness or such difficulties, mm. challenges that present in that sort of way? I think that's a really important question. And we, we have seen some acknowledgement of that now. You know, the government has a minister for loneliness. Why? Uh, I mean, it's not a job I'd be queuing up for, but I guess, you know, perhaps they get that before they move on to a bigger job. But um, it, it is an important statement of intent, I think. And we know now also that the NHS has invested money 
in primary care networks. These are collections of GP practices so that someone can be employed who is a, a social prescriber. They, they have different names, community navigators, social prescribers, uh, health coaches, key workers. But, but as you and I are used to having, the, these people, of course, are there for when this situation arises. As a doctor, I might think, I can't really help you with the fact that actually you don't have any close friendships or that you've become bereaved or that you've had a breakdown of your relationship. But I know someone who can. Mm. And in our practice, we can refer people into the social prescribers. And I explain it to them and say, look, you know, sometimes in life there are things which aren't directly what you might call health related there are things that maybe i as a doctor i'm not necessarily the best person to help you with but actually this person either can or they can point you in the right direction and i don't know whether you've have you seen that in action have you seen the benefits of of that in your practice i think certainly the conversations are being had in that it's beginning we're beginning to realize that it's something that we need to address mm. and um as you and I are aware how time poor we can be as GPs and consultations, it's just about having that at the back of one's mind and thinking a little bit more about it and starting the conversation and signposting. And th something that we haven't really mentioned, I guess, is um, I guess the communities, tribes, how we can encourage people to just be a bit more involved in I guess, faith-based communities mm. in uh, other aspects of community where they can be less lonely just to explore a different aspect of life. And signposting, and you've mentioned certainly the, the social prescribing, whereby I think I saw the other day on um, Gardener's World. Do you do any gardening? Do you garden? Uh, not if I can possibly avoid it. Oh, Richard. <laughs> Sorry, that's a shameful admission. Anyway, never mind. Another conversation for another day. But yeah, on Gardener's World, essentially there was a whole program dedicated to well-being. And part of this social prescribing involved recommending gardening Mm. You know, people going and spending some time gardening with others. It was really life-changing for a lot of people. The testimonials that were coming out of there, just because gardening is just about so much more than just putting seeds in the ground. You're going to cultivate that seed without any outcome, any known outcome from that point of view. You, The social aspect of things, you're going to meet other people. Mm. It is your outdoors, you're connecting with the earth. So there's so much more. So mm. I'm trying to convince you to be a gardener I, I, here. I would enjoy it but, if I did it more with other people. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, social prescribing enables them to be able to advocate for that as well. So things like that, um, mm. definitely. I think that's that's a really good point. Parkrun, for example, the um, the director of Parkrun, whose name I forget, was interviewed once and about uh, why Parkrun was set up and yes. what it was. And I think he said Parkrun is a social enterprise dressed up as a sports event, something like that. And I, I've seen, I don't go every week, and obviously we haven't been able to go at all, sadly, for the last year. But I've been a few times in the past, and you can see just how much people enjoy it. And there are those who are just walking around as well as those who are trying to smash their personal best. I stay well clear of those people because I don't want to get in their way. And you mentioned faith. And you know there are lots of examples of great community action that are often provided by faith groups and, and groups that are obviously not faith-based. The church has been involved in lots of things like, um, well, food banks, for example, in, during the pandemic, and just giving people somewhere a, a place to go and talk. A place to go and be talk. Be listened to. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and other voluntary organizations, certainly like the Samaritans. This mm. is something that I remember if I know, especially because I also work for an out-of-hour service whereby you've never met a patient mm. and yet you can sort of sense that turmoil really. And it can be difficult in an out-of-hour setting to recommend where people should go in terms of mental health, loneliness aspect of things. So the Samaritans have been very kind of useful in that sort of sense, mm. I guess. There's a faith element to that, but equally they are available mm. from that point of view. So really, really approaching this in that psychosocial and cultural mm. aspect, respecting those. And I think just to go back around the houses slightly, we started off talking about seeing patients in our consultations. And loneliness is a real issue because there is good evidence to show that it could knock a significant number of years off your life expectancy in, in terms of death from all causes, simply through loneliness. So if a patient does end up in front of you, whilst you may not have hours to spend with them, and, and the correct answer ultimately may be some signposting and some encouragement, would you, if you, if we were talking about sort of tips for, for managing loneliness and building connections, what are the kind of things that you might suggest they could consider in, in terms of building or pruning their relationships and their connections? Well, certainly it, it's just about making that investment, especially if loneliness is not necessarily because somebody is alone. It's just because they're feeling a little bit isolated, a bit unwanted, a bit misunderstood. It's about knowing that if you cultivate, invest a bit more in your relationships, it can be fruitful, basically. Mm. So making time for that. And one other thing that I was just thinking about is that so often when, I don't know if you've seen it, when you're out there, you'll be out on a res at a restaurant if you can, and uh, people are on the phones and they're not really together. Yeah. I'm guilty of it, I'm not going to lie, mm. but um, something that I'm very mindful of. It's just that sort of awareness yet again of being mindful of making an effort. We are social beings, you know. And just having the courage to connect with other people and talking. It, it is really important that we talk about these things and seeking help. If you are feeling lonely, not dressing it up as anything else, just seeking help. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's particularly valid advice at, at the moment as well in, in the pandemic. We know that, as you say, we are social animals. And people who say that they don't need people it doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's like someone who has a small appetite saying that they don't need food. You know, we, we need people in different doses. Absolutely. Uh, and we need different qualities and quantities of relationships. And I think we've had to be quite deliberate about it because in the pandemic, we've unwittingly conducted the world's largest experiment ever into loneliness. You know, we didn't submit a protocol. We didn't get ethics approval for this dreadful experiment. We just had no choice, but we did it. Yeah. And, and I think, going back to your comments about digital technology, it certainly has its place. I did take part in a few Facebook pub quizzes for the first few months before I got really bored of them. And, and I have done Zoom calls with groups of friends and family. But I think now that we're able to do a bit more face-to-face, -face, even if it's just outdoors at the moment, yes. there's really no substitute for that. Our, our brain knows the difference between a picture on a screen yes. and a person in front of us as we're sitting talking now. And I think we shouldn't underestimate that. And so your comment about the digital, I think, is really valid because we need to be intentional. And where we can still only see people over a screen because they live too far away or they're not able to travel because they're poorly or whatever, that's valuable. Yes. But but we shouldn't substitute our 
our real networks for the, you know with the social network as a instead so that's one of my tips that i give to patients as well no absolutely i agree with all of that it it, it actually makes sense in that throughout the last 18 months or so we have been deconditioned and mm. so that had fed that sort of narrative in a sense so it's about following on and uh, it's about starting to explore a little bit more safely obviously but it mm. is about making that conceited effort in terms of connecting with others mm. Yes. And just a simple conversation can be so nice. I caught up with one of the, the uh, Ned the florist, uh, who's a, who works in St Albans, and we hadn't seen each other for months because florists are not an essential business. I don't know whether my wife would agree with that, but <laughs> for a while he wasn't able to open. And we caught up the other day and we were chatting away for sort of 10, 15 minutes, having not spoken for ages, and just starting the day with a walk into town in the fresh air and, and connecting with this guy and having a chat a real meaningful exchange. Really, from a selfish perspective, it set me up for the day. And actually, that's one of the tips I give to people in that it's good for you, obviously, but to connect with other people, you know, it's good for them and it's good for you. It's a it's a mutually beneficial thing. Everybody wins. And, and I've learned that over the last year, I've had some conversations with members of staff and I realised how little I knew about their lives because my standard thing was, Hi, how are you? I'm fine. And you? Yeah, I'm fine too. And you know, you, you've exchanged. You, you've had the required pleasantries, and that's job done. Yes. And you can't, you can't have a half hour conversation with everyone. But when you do, just every now and again, take a moment to think: Did they drop a cue there? When they said, "Oh, I'm fine," did they sort of roll their eyes slightly or yes. look a bit resigned? Yes. And maybe that is a chance for me just to have that extra conversation with them, and maybe not do something else. And that connection that it builds between you can be a really powerful thing. Yeah, changing the culture in the environments that we live in, that mm. we work in, because we spend so much time in this environment. So if we start to just initiate these, what might sound like a little bit of an inane conversation, mm. you're talking and, you know, it makes you feel happy and it makes, you know, life not so stressful. We've mm. talked about stress in our other podcasts, but um, physiologically, there is that boost in our in our brains that improves those uh you know the the dopamine receptors, and so it's. I think it's it's important that we do that. And I think Wendy, it feels to me like uh, as we come to the end of the podcast here that we've we've finished on a, on, on a very positive note. We yes. start we started by talking about how dreadfully lonely we all are, but hopefully we've come up with some some good ideas for for people and and shared our experiences of that as well. Um, so it's been lovely to have this conversation with you. I hope our listeners have got as much out of it as I have. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you, Richard. It's been lovely to connect with you. And with you, Wendy. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to Wellbeing for Real Life with me, Dr. Richard Pyle. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give it a nice review and tell other people about it. If you'd like to learn more, my book, Fit for Purpose, is out now, published by Harper Inspire and available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. You can also follow me on Twitter, YouTube, and my website, wellbeingforreal.life. This podcast was recorded at Monkey Nut Audiobooks. Until next time, take care of yourself.